HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Listening to Cooking Issues coming to you live every Tuesday from noon to twelve forty-five on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Dave Arnold, uh, the host of Cooking Issues. I'm here with Nastasha Lopez. Uh, we're from the French Culinary Institute, and we're here to answer all of your cooking questions. Call in at seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight. Four nine seven two one two eight. For those of you that don't know us, we specialize in technical kinds of cooking questions, pieces of equipment. New techniques, new ingredients, but we, uh, we're interested in basically any food-related question you have. Uh, today's show is brought to you by the Fairway Markets. No matter where you live in New York City, you're probably pretty close to a Fairway Market. Uh, I believe that uh, we're actually being sponsored by Steve Jenkins from Fairway, who's uh, one of the great cheesemongers in uh, all of uh, the country, probably, that Fairway has and has had for many, many years. An amazing selection of cheeses, a uh, great selection of meats and other produce. Fairway like no other market. Uh, all right, Nastasha, so uh, <clears throat> you want to start off before we answer any questions with uh, kind of what we've been doing over the past week or so? Well, uh, you've been gone for a while. Right. Well, I just got back from New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans every year has this event called Tales of the Cocktail where uh, a good chunk of the uh, bar industry in the United States heads down to New Orleans in the middle of uh, summer when it's piss hot and humid and gets horribly, horribly drunk over the course of a couple of days, all in the interest of uh, theoretically learning more about uh, <clears throat> you know, how to prepare fine drinks. And a lot about the history of fine drinks. I was down there doing a uh, seminar called uh, The Science of Stirring, which was a follow-up to our smash hit last year, The Science of Shaking. Uh, basically, I was there with Evan Clem, who is the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the head of beverage for Be Our Guest. You know, they do those Caminos restaurants here in the city. He serves something like 8,000 margaritas on Cinco de Mayo. Um, and uh, Thomas Waugh from uh, Death & Co., uh, which was, you know, just, I guess this year, just won, like, best bar in the universe at Tales of the Cocktail or something like that. Best cocktailist in the universe, something like that. Like a bunch of best in the universe kinds of things. Anyway, uh, this year we were investigating how stirring, uh, you know, what is the basic science behind stirring a cocktail? Um, the, and the interesting things about it, I'll talk about it for a minute, is uh, last year when we did shaking, the fundamental uh, thing we learned about shaking was that it really <clears> – <throat> your shaking style doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of the temperature and the dilution of the drink when you're done. Also, the ice doesn't make that much of a difference. Assuming there's not a lot of water on the ice doesn't make that much 
of a difference within reason. And that's good news for people, especially at home, because it means that they can make a decent quality drink without, without being basically the Yoda of the shake. Uh, you know, as long as they, you know, do a relatively decent job and they shake, you know, for about, you know, 12 to 15 seconds, they're going to, you know, get uh, fundamentally this similar dilution all, you know, every time they do it. Uh, stirring, unfortunately, uh, is a lot more a lot more complicated because stirring is not as efficient as uh, shaking in, in chilling. So that the first rule of all of cocktails, <clears throat> by the way, especially in bars where the ice that they're using in the bar is almost always right at the melting point. It's not from the freezer. And by the way, even if you use ice that's in a freezer, you think you're winning a lot because it's a lot colder than ice that's you know been sitting out. Uh, you don't actually win that much because uh, <clears throat> ice doesn't have that much extra energy in it stored uh, in the form of temperature. Most of it is given when it melts. It's the melting of ice that really does most of the chilling and dilution. So the fundamental rule of cocktails is there is no dilution without chilling, and there is no chilling without dilution. They're related. Uh, and so because... Stirring is less effective than shaking and chilling. Uh, it, it, you actually um, can alter the drink greatly by how much you, you stir it. So while a cocktail, when you shake, it only takes about 12, 15 seconds to reach equilibrium, a stirred cocktail can take uh, up to a minute or, or longer. Um, okay, so uh, with that, that's what I was doing for the past week. And if you want to call in with any more questions about stirring, we're going to put a blog post up pretty soon on you know with all kinds of nice purdy charts and graphs on stirring fast, stirring slow, stirring with big ice, stirring with crappy ice, yada, yada, yada. Um, anyway, so, you know, that's what we've been up to. Uh, now, I'm going to take some of the questions that we had emailed to us over the past week. Uh, Michael Natkin, the author of com, which is a vegetarian recipe blog, asks a very interesting question. He says, why do some things taste better the next day? Uh, for instance, tomato sauces, lentil soup, and stews. Uh, and he says the conventional wisdom is that the flavors marry uh, when it's left overnight, but that doesn't really seem very well defined. So first of all, is this true, he asks. And if it is true, then you know why? Can we pinpoint anything specific uh, on a, from a chemical standpoint uh, of why that's the case? Well, <clears throat> this is an extremely interesting question. Uh, the short answer is yes, some foods do taste better uh, at, you know, after they've been sitting for a while, uh, and, but some taste noticeably worse. Um, in the vegetable world, for instance, uh, potatoes can, uh, be, when they're stored, take on an off flavor that's you know perceived as kind of cardboardy. Uh, and same with, with meats can take on, although you don't care because you're a vegetarian <laughs> recipe blog, but uh, certain meats can take on a flavor called warmed over flavor when they've been chilled and reheated. And what's happening in those cases when things taste bad is that uh, there's an oxidation, a fat oxidation going on. So, uh, you know, there's certain, you know, uh, polyunsaturated fats in there that are being um, oxidized to create kind of these off cardboardy, rancid, warmed over flavors in, in certain potatoes and in certain meats when they're <coughs> reheated and stored in the presence of oxygen, and a vacuum bag can kind of ameliorate those problems. Now, the problem of things actually tasting better and changing is a lot more complicated than that. So certain people, certain foods that people think taste better when they're reheated, like for instance, pizza, if you reheat it properly, is because let's say the person who made it uh, didn't have their dough uh, balanced quite right and water migrated to the crust, right? So now your crust is floppy. If you reheat it properly, you can recrisp the crust and it's actually crisper than it used to be because there's less water in the crust and so you can get a crisper crust. So certain, in certain pizzas, you can actually get a better product when you reheat it versus when you, when you had it the first time. Uh, <clears throat> lasagna is another thing pointed to often. People say, 
Well, lasagna tastes better. Uh, lasagna, as it's cooling, the pasta presumably can then reabsorb more water than it, than, than it could. It absorbs water out of the sauce. The sauce becomes more concentrated. That's one effect, so it's going to taste uh, you know, <clears throat> good upon reheating. A secondary effect with uh, strong-flavored sauces, uh, like tomato, like uh, stews, like soups, um, is that these sauces have lots of high notes uh, in the volatiles that kind of uh, can stick out. Now, uh, these volatiles can flash off when it's cooling and flash, you know, flash off again when it's, when it's rewarming, and this can uh, basically create an evening out effect of the flavor. But even more so, as it's being stored in the, uh, in the fridge, the actual, uh, the actual levels of the different volatiles can change as they're de- degraded or uh, <clears throat> you know, broken up or hydrolyzed in the food as it's being stored. And what's interesting is, is that the breakdown of these, vol- see, so these volatile compounds, a lot of them are created when the, when the food is cooked, right? Uh, and they react a different way when they're uh, on the heat than they do w- when they're uh, in the fridge. So you, I, you get a different kind of breakdown of these compounds. And then when you reheat it, you, you break, you're breaking more down again and basically... Um, you can cause a leveling off of these volatiles. So there's, uh, and I was, I was hard-pressed this morning. I was looking to try and find some spe- specific papers on it so I could cite some for you, but I couldn't. But this is my feeling, uh, my memory, I should say, of, of what's going on in the situation. Uh, you know, that, and that's aside from any actual kind of effect they have where you know, maybe the spice didn't penetrate to the center of a bean, let's say, and when you let it sit overnight, it does. So there's many, many multiple uh, effects uh, going on. It's actually quite a complicated uh, uh, process, but yes, uh, certain foods can taste better and certain foods can taste worse. Um, okay, so uh, hopefully that uh, answers that question. Uh, I have another one. Uh, someone says, my mom wants, uh, anonymous by the way, my mom wants to know if she can put a frozen piece of meat into a crock pot. Uh, yes, yes you can. So here's what happens, and I believe we have another question on freezing that I'm going to deal with later, but Freezing is fundamentally a dehydration technique. So what happens is when water freezes, it freezes into, uh, into ice. It's pure water. So you have water that's bound in cells. <clears throat> that water basically crystallizes out and freezes a, a, as crystals. Okay, So the, the, the ice uh, that forms is basically removed from uh, either between the cells or in the cells of your meat. It's fundamentally or pr- whatever product you're freezing. It's fundamentally a dehydration process. Now... Super rapid thawing in certain cases can prevent uh, certain foods like meats that might reabsorb that liquid from reabsorbing them. Also, improperly frozen things that have a lot of damaged cells in them will not reabsorb the liquid. And you'll, you can tell a good quality frozen product from a bad quality frozen product because um, you'll see a lot more what's called drip loss. You'll see a lot of liquid flowing out of the, out of the you know, product as it's thawing, right? That's a, the hallmark of an improperly frozen thing. Now, certain things you just can't help it, like berries. They're gonna, that's going to happen unless you have some very good freezing technology like liquid nitrogen um, because the faster you freeze it, the less damage uh, there is uh, to, within reason. I mean, if you freeze it too fast, it turns brittle and shatters, but uh, that's, you know, that's another story. So <clears throat> now, when you're cooking something in a crock pot, right, a crock pot, is a, a fairly it's fairly gentle in that it doesn't scorch foods, but it's also a fairly high heat. You're gonna basically cook the heck out of that meat, and you're gonna cook it so long that you're gonna cook all that water out anyway. Uh, and you're you're getting the juiciness out of the sauce that's cooking in, and you're getting the juiciness out of the gelatin that's cooking in. So there's there's absolutely no reason why you can't. Uh, sear your meat from frozen if you want to do that and then throw it in the crock pot and go from there. You're going to cook it for a long time. It's not going to throw off your cooking times that much unless the meat is very, very thick. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think that's, that's fine practice and it's definitely going to save you, save you some time. <clears throat> 
Another uh, anonymous question uh, came in. Uh, I want to know if it's true that putting your face in front of a microwave is going to damage you. Well, this is an interesting question. I've had this question asked uh, many times. And as someone that has done many unauthorized things to microwave ovens, I'm somewhat qualified to answer this question. Um, you'll notice that the inside of your microwave is, uh, is all metal, okay? And that there's a shield, a grate over the front door of the microwave that's also made out of metal and it's perforated with little holes. Now, <clears throat> those little holes are specifically designed to not allow microwaves through. So the even though you can see the light, the light is a very uh, much uh, shorter wavelength than uh, microwaves. So light can make it through without a problem, but um, <clears throat> the microwaves um, cannot at all. In fact, even if those holes were a good bit larger, like the size of a pencil, you still wouldn't get appreciable radiation uh, through that. Now, if you have a, uh, a microwave, microwaves have that, that, metal, that metal perforated sheet, and then they also have usually a plastic or glass sheet in front of that perforated sheet. And what that's doing is that stops you from putting your eyes directly against that metal grate. If you put your eyes directly against that metal grate, you will have some microwave energy that can make it through those little holes for very, very short distances. I'm talking very short distances. So I do not recommend removing the metal grate and then putting your eyeballs against the uh, against the uh, the that perforated you know perforated sheet now it is true that certain microwaves, if the latch fails or they have problems with their gasketing and their door material, uh, such that you know basically the microwaves can leak leak out and there's not a good uh, grounding between uh, all the different parts, then yes, you can get uh, some leakage of microwaves. They make basically microwave detectors, which are just meters that sense whether there's microwave radiation. You can walk around your your microwave and and see whether or not it's leaking. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if you're paranoid about these things, you know they're not that expensive. You can get one, uh, and you know I used one once when I did a lot of modifications to a microwave and wanted to make sure I wasn't going to turn anyone's eyeballs into, uh, you know, poached eggs. Because, uh, you know, once the, once the protein in your eyes goes white from being denatured, it's, uh, it's you know, end of story. And this actually used to happen. You know, microwaves are very similar to radar uh, technology. In fact, the old story, my grandfather, uh, you know, uh, before he retired, was a, a radar technician, uh, not technician, engineer, built radars, including radars for Air Force jets uh, back in the day. And the old story was that an engineer at Raytheon figured out, and it's probably apocryphal, but figured out the microwave oven because he was working on a radar uh, unit and the, uh, and the candy bar in his uh, pocket melted. And he was, uh, you know, I was like, ah, that's interesting. Candy bar in my pocket melted and then kind of all, all uh, you know, went from there. But I believe that there's also been cases, and I don't know whether it's just to scare the crap out of me, uh, that, you know, people have stared down uh, you know an old school radar, continuous way radar thing, and you know been blinded and all this other stuff. So, anyway, I hope that answers. I hope that answers your question. Uh, okay, <clears throat> let's uh, take one. Oh, yeah. What? We have two more minutes. Oh, we have two more minutes. All right. Well, maybe I maybe I shouldn't take a, a complicated uh, complicated question in before I uh, before I go to break. Um, I will say that I hope you call in. Uh, our number is seven one eight. Four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Or you can email Nastasha at Lopez dot N A S T A S S I A at Gmail dot com. Right, and we're going to try to handle all of your cooking-related questions. Uh, when we get back, we'll answer some more questions, and I will talk about the weird variety meats that we've been cooking. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? good. Feel so much bone, brother. Call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, Jam! Sure getting down. Look at him! Ha! We're gonna have... 
This is Dave Arnold, and you're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Call in with your cooking-related questions, or, you know, at this point, any questions, at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Okay, so we have a question in from uh, Greg Kreckelberg, uh, and he asks actually some very complicated uh, technical questions. He, He wants to know... Uh, the first question actually is a little easier to deal with. He says, what can a, a home cook do to freeze foods or sauces that will break when you freeze them? And he wants to know, should I add gelatin, agar, starches, fats, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and liquid nitrogen is one of them. I like, uh, I like Greg, that uh, you're saying a home-friendly technique for doing this is to use liquid nitrogen. I really appreciate that. And it shows how far we've come in the, in the past uh, couple of years. Now, <clears throat> um, Liquid nitrogen probably actually, uh, it doesn't help freeze-thaw stabilize some things, but I know that it does prevent um, other things from getting um, damaged by, by freezing. I haven't done a lot of testing with liquid nitrogen freeze-thawing. Li- liquid, nitrogen, liquid nitrogen will um, preserve the quality. You're going to get a lot less drip loss out of foods that are frozen with liquid nitrogen. If you're going to freeze something with liquid nitrogen and, and, and you think it's going to become too brittle, uh, one way to, to do it best, and I, I learned this from... Um, you know, uh, someone who basically works in a cow semen, uh, cow semen operation, uh, you want to suspend the food above the liquid nitrogen, just above the liquid nitrogen, for a number of minutes to pre-freeze it uh, before it becomes hyper-brittle, and then you can immerse it in the liquid nitrogen, and you're going to get a, a, a very, uh, you know, <clears throat> nicely frozen product. But I assume that this is not what you mean. Uh, I, things like so the question he's saying, should he add things to his, uh, his sauces uh, like gelatin, agar, starches, and fats to, to make them more freeze-thaw stable? Um, gelatin is not freeze-thaw stable, uh, and neither is agar. In fact, we use both of those things. Uh, we use the fact that they're not freeze-thaw stable when we're clarifying uh, juices. We basically freeze them, and then when they thaw, they weep, uh, they weep fluid uh, quite readily, and we use that fact to, uh, to clarify things. So, so those don't work. In, in general, what you want to add to, to uh, increase freeze-thaw stability <coughs> are uh, thickeners. Uh, thickeners like uh, locust bean gum, thickeners like xanthan gum. So uh, something that basically holds together, but uh, is you know has a tendency to weep a little bit or or, or break a little bit. Uh, you know, a little bit like under a percent of locust bean. Um, locust bean has to be heated, of course. Uh, guar, but guar tastes kind of bad uh, unless you have the really nice guar made by TIC Gums, the flavor-free guar. A um, little bit of xanthan also acts as a stabilizer. is going to stop things from, from weeping out. There are starches that will, will help. I don't... Um, I don't happen to know what they are. I didn't have a chance to research them before I, before I came over. Um, but uh, in general, you, you move towards some sort of a thickener to help stabilize a situation, especially a gel. If you want to make a gel more freeze-thaw stable, you're going to use some sort of thickener, um, like I say, like, like, like locust bean, like, um, like guar, like, like xanthan. Um, now, um, 
let me think. I'm trying to see the other questions. I'm not exactly sure. He's saying um, uh, sauces like whole, whole vegetables roasted, but I'm not exactly sure what the freeze-thaw problem with that is. If it's weeping because of, of texture uh, being broken down, then the best way to make sure that you freeze and thaw those nicely is to use very, very rapid freezing. Uh, and the best way to do that is, of course, liquid nitrogen. Barring that, you can make an ice slush with about 25% um, salt by weight with ice. Make a slush with that. Put your foods in a bag and then immerse them in a slush. It's going to freeze them very quickly with very small ice crystals, and it's going to uh, preserve the flavor uh, in, those, in those kinds of things. Now, uh, he says on the flip side, what's a good way to, to thaw these ingredients? Thawing is actually a really interesting problem. When you, uh, <clears throat> it's easier, believe this, it's easier to freeze something uh, quickly than it is to thaw. And here's why. Uh, ice is actually a much better heat conductor than water. Much better. Uh, the only reason you think water is a much better conductor of heat, right, is that uh, um, it can move around. Inside your food, the water can't move around, so it's not as good a conductor uh, as, um, as, uh, as ice is. So once something starts freezing in the freezer, the outside becomes ice. It now becomes a very good conductor. Now it's easier for the inside to freeze. When you're thawing, the outside uh, thaws first. Now it's water. Now it's harder to conduct the heat in. It also takes more energy to heat ice than it does to heat water. And so it actually takes longer to... Uh, to thaw something than it does to freeze it. If you want to speed thawing, obviously the best way to do it is to, if you want it to be fast, is to put it in a bag and then put it in uh, running water. Inside a bag in running water, ideal. It's going to thaw it out. It's not going to, um, it's going to be fairly gentle, assuming you're going to use it right away, uh, and it's going to do, be fairly quick. I mean, that's the fastest way um, you know that we know of. I haven't experimented a lot. People used to sell thawing trays that were basically big blocks of aluminum, and that aluminum would just you know, draw the heat away from the uh, food. But I don't know whether they're any better or worse than just putting something, probably worse, than just putting something in uh, running water in uh, inside of a bag because that way you're wick- wicking heat away from all sides, not just from the side with the, with the metal block. Another question he has is uh, he really loves habaneros, uh, a- as do we. Uh, habanero peppers were, until very recently, the hottest peppers kind of uh, known. They've since been superseded by a couple other peppers called the ghost peppers. But those peppers, to my, I mean, I've never, I've never had a fresh ghost pepper. But to me, nothing beats the flavor uh, and the amazing floral aroma of habanero peppers. Uh, and Greg uh, apparently agrees with us. He says, "I do not like the heat they bring because most people are overwhelmed." But uh, but he loves the floral delicious floral aspects of the pepper. Now, he says he's developed basically a surgical method for lowering the heat, presumably by removing the, uh, the interior uh, portion of the veins and seeds and the, you know, the very interior portion of the, um, of the uh, skin <clears throat> on the inside. Uh, but he says it's moderately labor-intensive and no one would do it in bulk. And I agree. That sounds like a huge pain in the butt. And I know from a lot of experience with them in the kitchen that when you deal with them a lot, everything gets contaminated and people get pissed and they start hacking and wheezing all over the kitchen because it's just just horrible. Could there be some low or mid-temperature way to dissolve and move the capsation out? Capsation is what makes things hot. Uh, out of the picture while preserving uh, the enchanting floral nature of the pepper. No vodka, no rotovap. Okay, maybe vodka, but still no rotovap. Well, Greg, you're killing me here because the rotovap is the primo way to to do this. Um, I I don't know. You might be able to do regular distillation without a rotovap. I mean, you, you could try um, just 
uh, macerating or, or grinding the, the uh, peppers in vodka and then doing a simple stovetop distillation with, uh, you know, just with a, a bowl of ice. Uh, you know, uh, you look up anything on the any on the internet, any site on simple stovetop distillation, you just need a pot, some ice, and a bowl. Now, the the downside is is that this is going to happen upwards of you know eighty degrees or so Celsius, whereas I can do it down at like forty Celsius. Now, I I, I don't know for a fact how much those amazing floral aromas are going to be affected by that higher heat, but but uh, I, you know I would love it if you would try it and then and then tell us. Um, I don't uh, it just soaking in vodka like that the vodka sucks that heat up now it, uh, perhaps the perhaps the alcohol preferentially soaks up the capsaicin in which case you might be able to use the peppers slightly deheated after you do it but I don't think you're going to preferentially take the capsaicin as opposed to those floral aromas. I think you're going to lose a little bit of both. Um, he suggests maybe using peelzyme, which is an enzyme that we use to break down uh, the tissue. Unfortunately, peelzyme uh, breaks down the actual flesh tissue of peppers and turns them to mush. And so I don't think that, uh, that that's going to help. Um, I don't, uh, and he says possibly that in um, in conjunction with an oleophilic, something that's going to bond to fats. That's a possibility, uh, but I just I haven't tested it, so I can't say whether whether it's going to work or not. But it is something that I will look into more. And if you have any ideas, uh, Greg, I encourage you to please. Write or or call us and and um, give us some good ideas, right, Nastasha? Yes, that's something we're interested in. Um, okay, sorry, I couldn't be more help on that. Here's another one I can't be more help on. Uh, someone says, "Do we have any comments on the Aeropress type coffee filtration? Uh, the Aeropress type coffee maker?" Uh, and the question is like, how does it? How what does it taste like? Uh, the you know how does it flavor? You know the flavor. What's the acid balance? This blah blah blah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Paul wrote in that. Unfortunately, Paul. Uh, I have not used uh, the Aeropress. Um, I have good friends who've had a, done a lot of work with them. I have some calls into Jeffrey Steingarten, but I, he's even harder to get in touch with than I am. He's like the only person in the world harder to get in touch with. He answers his phone less than I do, and uh, I couldn't. Uh, he's a big advocate, so I wanted to ask what what he thought. For those of you that don't know the Aeropress, it was designed, I think, by the same. What's the name of that frisbee, Nastasha, with the hole in the middle that that flies for like a million yards? The Araby, is that it? Araby. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? No. Anyway, I think it was designed by the same um, same fellow that did, did the Araby, I believe. And uh, it's basically a cylinder with a filter in it and a piston. You put the coffee in the hot water. You push the piston down. It provides some amount of pressure and then forces it out. And the, the, the main thing is it's supposed to make delicious coffee. And it's supposed to – it's cheap. And you can carry it wherever, wherever you want to go. Um, the reason I haven't experimented with it is that uh, although it is a pressurized coffee system, it doesn't generate 135 or so psi, like you know, eight nine uh, bar, uh, which is what you need to make espresso. And this is not because I'm a snob at all, but I, basically I only drink espresso, and I drink like a billion, I drink a billion cups of it a day. And for years I've had uh, just because I'm like this, I went on eBay and actually to a restaurant auction. I went to a restaurant auction once. And I bought a uh, the first espresso machine I owned was a two-group Ranchilio restaurant machine from a restaurant auction where the restaurant has been shut down by the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency because they were also dealing drugs out of the restaurant. When the Drug Enforcement Agency shuts down your restaurant, what they do is they walk up and they put a padlock on the door and the, and then they unplug all the lights, right? Uh, well, actually, they just flip the circuit breaker and then all the food just sits there and rots in your fridge until they get around to figuring out what the hell they're going to do. Well, 
this place was in uh, somewhere, you know, in the in the one fifties, one sixties somewhere near Broadway, and uh, they just let it rot for like a year or you know eight months a year, and then they had a restaurant auction, and so uh, you know I showed up at the restaurant auction, and when they opened the door, the aroma was so over the st- aroma, the miasmal stench was so overwhelming <laughs> that uh, you know li- literally like like seasoned veterans of restaurants were running out of there, and to me I was like, hey, this is great news, this is awesome because what it means is is that no one is going to bid on this crap. I mean, no one is going to bid on this crap because no one can even stand in the room. With this, you know, like like all the Cuban sandwich rolls were still there, all desiccated and half eaten. Like you, you would have like a, a bun, and then a mouse that was eating the bun that had died, and then the mouse had in turn been eaten by whatever else was in there. I mean, it was horrible, horrible. But tell them how you got it home. Well, I, I, another guy was being there. Another guy who, who, who he like, you know, he actually like literally was a crack dealer at one point and decided he was going to, you know, go legit and had uh, started a uh, was starting a downtown restaurant you know like a food cart and he was buying stuff and you know I, I paid him $20 to drive me home and then uh, I left the espresso pump in his car and I had to go out and find him and he was like who the hell's calling me anyway whatever I got this machine <laughs> For almost for nothing, but I had to disassemble it and boil it, uh, every single part of it, and reconstruct it. I learned a lot about espresso machines, but the, the that's a long way of saying that I've had a commercial espresso machine for a long time, and so I haven't necessarily investigated other techniques for making coffee. And I apologize that I have a very uh, small amount of knowledge on the AeroPress coffee system, but from what I hear, it's uh, it's it's pretty good. That's what I hear, and so if, I'm sure that. Uh, and you, you now made me feel bad that I haven't experimented with it, and I don't know what it, co- it costs some like minimal amount of money, I think. So now maybe I'll just go buy one and play with it, or at least maybe get uh, Steingarten to call me back and have him tell me why it's why it's so great. Uh, a next next segment, I promise I will talk about the weird meats that we ate. You're listening to Cooking Issues on a Heritage Radio Network. Call in your questions at seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. And this is Cooking Issues, and I am David Arnold. Listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Dave Arnold, and we are here to answer your cooking issues, whether they come in via email or via telephone. 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. So, 
We ran an interesting experiment last week uh, where we ordered a whole bunch of odd meats from a butcher in Chicago. I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin the name. What is it, Nastasha? It's like Zimer C Z I M E R. Okay, and so these guys for generations, I think since you know the the teens, since like 19. 1990, so 1914, some of that. These guys have been uh, dealing in uh, kind of odd, odd meats. Now, one of the strange things—not strange things—America uh, you know, used to be known as kind of the game, uh, the game food capital of the world. We just had so much of it, uh, you know, er- early on, uh, and all of it was legal to sell. So if you go back and you look in uh, on the web at something called the, the Markets Assistant, and it was in, basically a guide to the New York markets that was written, um, b- both before and after and around the Civil War. Uh, you know, you'll see, and it's available on Google Books. And the guy at the front looks like Bill the Butcher Pool from uh, from uh, Gangs of New York. It's kind of cool. But the list of foods that was available to purchase in, in markets, even in New York City, was shattering, amazing. I mean, just the, the, the different types of meats. And the reason was is that anything that you killed, uh, shot, you know, caught, whatever, was fair game. There were no rules. There were no regulations. Uh, a combination of things has caused that to not be the case anymore. One is sanitary regulations. So you, things have to be slaughtered in uh, basically in approved slaughterhouse now, so that cuts down the amount of things that you can do, and you're also not allowed to sell foods that you hunt, game that you hunt, and that's up due to, you know, the fact that we were just killing too damn much, and to keep the animals, uh, you know, to keep a good stock of animals, there was conservation uh, laws put on them. Also, specifically things like birds, that you used to be able to shoot any damn thing. It's like the, 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 the birds that you're allowed to kill now are, are very, very highly regulated, and, and um, like one of the ones I really want to actually eat is this thing called the, the bobolink. This is off topic. I don't care. The bobolink is this is this tiny bird. Okay, listen. Many of the viewers out there are viewers. Many listeners are, listeners out there are familiar with the ortolan. The ortolan is the famous French bird that you eat bones and all. They roast it whole, and you're supposed to put a napkin over it. Some people say to preserve the aroma. Some people say to hide from God. And th- these ortolan are basically little birds, and they go on a long migration. And uh, somewhere, you know, in, near the beginning, in the middle of the migration, they stop by in the Mediterranean area in France, and they gorge because they need to get a lot of energy, and they get very fat so that they can fly all the way south, right? It's a passerine type of bird. It's bird migration. So what these what they've done for centuries is, is catch these birds and then fatten them specifically so that they're little plump, fat, little juicy morsels. They then, okay, this sounds awful. This part's awful. Then they, they, uh, they usually suffocate them in liquor and then roast them whole. So this is the famous ortolan that's now, now illegal. And by the way, Fattening things like this has a long, long, long history. It goes back you know, to the Romans and probably before the Romans where they used to fatten animals like fig peckers and dormice and things like that, fatten them specifically for the kitchen, catch them and fat them. Okay, now, the ortolan is not the only bird like this. There are two other well-known to the cultures that do them, uh, migration birds like that that get super fat and get caught and get eaten. One's in China, and I, I forget the name of it. It's like the yellow-breasted patty swallow or something like that in English. I forget the name of it. But the other one is the Bobolink, which used to be known as the rice bird. And when we used to grow a lot of rice in South Carolina uh, all the way up until the early part of uh, last century, uh, the migration of these birds would go down. They'd see all the rice and these flocks, these, like, you could, like basically this huge, huge migrating flocks would go down and they would eat a crap load of rice, get amazingly fat, and, uh, all, but because they were hurting the rice crop and because apparently they were incredibly delicious, you'd basically just fire these like small shot shotguns into the air and the birds would just you know fall like rain around you and you'd pick them up and they were supposedly the best thing in the world. They were called rice birds. 
anyway, you used to be able to get those. And I called every single country, their, their, the commissions involved in every single country in the migration from here all the way down to South America to see whether any of them allowed me to eat that bird, and they didn't. Uh, anyways, it's just a, a rant on the on the bobbling. Um, okay, back to the weird meats. That, sorry, back to the weird meats that we were uh, we were eating. So, this place gets all these weird meats that are typically now unavailable, but maybe would have been available before all of these uh, these these laws. Uh, which, by the way, the laws are good. I'm not saying the laws are bad. Um, now, uh, the meats we got were we got uh, lion meat, and the lion is obtained. I think I said last week the lion is obtained because um, lo- lions that aren't wanted anymore by morons who have them as pets or uh, breeding programs, um, they're not wanted anymore. They give them up, and typically they can't be placed again. They're slaughtered uh, for their fur, and then the meat becomes a byproduct. Uh, we had beaver, and I don't really know, like, why. I don't know what happened with the beaver. I don't know what the deal is with that. Um, but the um, we had black bear, probably a similar situation to the lion. We had yak, which I believe was actually farmed for this purpose. Um, what else did we have? A whole raccoon. We had a whole raccoon. Uh, and we had one other, didn't we? Or is that it? Um, hmm? I think that's it. That's it? Okay. Yeah. So I'm here to tell you what this stuff tasted like. Lion was quite interesting. Lion tastes like pork. Right? Pork chop. Tastes like pork chop. A little bit more savory. It's interesting. It's got kind of a, it's a pork based flavor with kind of a unique savory thing, probably due to the fact that it's a carnivore. It eats only meat, and we very rarely eat. Uh, carnivores. So it was, uh, I, I liked the lion a lot. It was an older animal. Uh, we cooked it at uh, 50, no, yeah, I, what did I cook it at? 60. I cooked it at 60 degrees uh, Celsius for only, it felt really tender, so I only cooked it for an hour or two, and it was quite tough. I think we needed to cook it a lot longer to kind of, because it didn't have a lot of like visible connective tissue, but since it was so old, it was kind of tough. So the next time I cook lion, I think I'm going to cook it for a good maybe 10 hours at 60 Celsius or thereabouts. It was, it was good. It was very good. Uh, we did, uh, I might have done 57. I wish I could remember. I got to go look at my numbers. Uh, bear was extremely dark, black almost, and also felt very, very tender before it was cooked. It felt very soft. We cooked it at um, 57, I believe, because uh, it looked like a steak, so I wanted to cook it like a steak level, also for about an hour. And it was also tough, but it had a really kind of bleh, right aftertaste, like really kind of, to me, bloody mineral aftertaste that I didn't really enjoy. You, you didn't like the bear, did you? you didn't I didn't the, try it. Uh, I was crazy. scared of the trichinosis. I told you that the trichinosis is going to be killed by that kitty procedure. We looked it up. We know the, like, the, the, the thermal death curse for trichinosis. I told you we killed all the trichinosis in that thing. I was still I had food poisoning that week. Oh, jeez. She Okay, so she reads trichinosis about it, and she thinks she has trichinosis. I'm like, you don't. Your body's not full of worms. I mean, it's a whole different ball of wax. And whatever. I'm not going to get into it. I didn't enjoy the bear that much. Um, yeah, some people say it tastes greasy. It didn't taste greasy. It just had kind of a weird metallic uh, aftertaste for me. Uh, the raccoon was a big disappointment. I cooked that raccoon. Probably I need to cook it a lot longer and at a higher temperature. I cooked it only for four or five hours at 60 uh, lion, by the way, I remember now, I cooked it at 57. The, uh, the raccoon, I, I cooked at uh, 60 for like uh, four and a half hours because I thought it was, you know. But it just because it was small doesn't mean it was, uh, it, it's young though. So it was tough. It doesn't have that much meat on it. In the future, I would cook it to a much higher temperature for a much longer time, like probably 63, 62, 63 degrees for like 24 hours and then shred it like for a stew. Uh, but it had a lot of fat on it. Really freak people out anyway. 
you know, it's not wasn't nearly as delicious as the guinea pigs that I've cooked from South America, which you know I think are delicious. So, but I'm willing to give raccoon another chance. But the raccoon, I had very high hopes for, and I I was disappointed. Now, on the positive side, that beaver was delicious. So there's beaver tail, which isn't actually the flapper, and then there's the flapper. Uh, the beaver tail. We cooked for 24 hours at 60 Celsius, and it was just delicious. It had a really interesting woody aroma that you know I'm, uh, I've never really had before in a, in a piece of meat. We had soaked it in a, in a little bit of uh, uh, vinegar water before we uh, cooked it because every recipe basically tells you to do that. So we did that, uh, and then we, we salted it a little bit, let it sit, and then uh, put it in a bag, cooked it at, uh, in butter at uh, 60 for 24 hours, and then shredded it to tail meat, and just just fantastic I love that beaver that beaver was delicious <laughs> right hey come on now Stasi. get, your, no, mind. It was get your mind out of the gutter it was like a woody pulled pork yeah it was very good mm-hmm. uh, very very good the flapper which is the actual tail part though is mainly fat and skin and we cooked that at a very uh, we, we skinned one first and then we, we cooked another one whole after we had scrubbed it uh, we cooked those at a high temperature, like 80 Celsius or so, for a couple of hours. And um, they rendered out, and but they were just kind of – I fried them afterwards, and they got kind of puffy and crispy on the outside. But there was just kind of too much fat on the inside, and we ate them last. Really what needs to happen – we've got to run some more experiments – is to cook them, then uh, take the fat out, use it for another preparation, and then use the skin, dehydrate it, and puff it like a chicharron. So, uh, you know, in the future, you will be having from us, from Cooking Issues team, probably – Beaver flapper chicharron because I think it's going to be good. It will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Stasi's having a tough time keeping it together here in the uh, in the in the room. Uh, and the the last one also really really delicious was the yak. Now the yak we did cook for uh, overnight at the same time as the same amount as we actually no sh- shoot I keep on getting my stuff wrong. I d- I cooked the yak at fifty seven for a whole day for twenty four hours at, or for overnight rather. And the beaver I actually cooked for two days. 48 hours at 60. I cooked it just like I cook a short rib. Okay. Excuse me, people. Sorry about that. So, uh, but the yak, we cooked uh, overnight because my, my theory was that it was kind of, you know, maybe not quite as tough as a short rib was going to be. And uh, so a short rib, if you cook it for uh, a full day at 60, for 24 hours at 60 degrees Celsius, comes out with the texture of like a skirt steak. And so that's what I was shooting for. So we did that with the yak, and the yak was just really savory and delicious. The odd thing was is that a lot of us detected a little bit of a duck kind of a and note. tuna. A duck and tuna. But it was just I – thought, I thought it was really good. I, and and the, the really interesting thing about these is that these animals are all old animals. Uh, and so you know, a bunch of friends of mine like uh, Steingarten, who won't call me back, and uh, <laughs> Harold McGee – have gone over to Europe where they have a, a culture of eating older, older animals uh, for the flavor. And, and you notice the flavor is really, really good. So I really I want to do a lot more uh, experimenting with cooking uh, older animals. We just got to figure out, uh, figure out uh, a way to get them. So <clears throat> if you want, I believe there is probably time for uh, one more caller if you, if you are near a phone. Call in at 71... Oh, we have one. Oh, we have a caller mm-hmm. in? All right, so there's probably no more time for other callers. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi. Name's Jason. Hey, Jason. How you doing? All right. Great. Um, I recently became obsessed with faro. Ah. I just don't know how to cook it right. So what's happening to it? Well, so my, my obsession began at an, uh, a restaurant that served the faro salad, and it was just nice and... Uh, perfectly cooked like rice and uh i've been cooking it at a uh 
ratio of three parts water to one part farro for about 50 minutes, and it just doesn't puff up as nicely. Hmm. So I'm wondering whether I should toast it initially or if, if I should soak it or, or what. Well, the soaking, the soaking will probably help. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I had done a lot of cooking, uh, done some cooking with it, rather, a number of years ago. I haven't cooked it recently. What kind of equipment do you have? Do you have a rice cooker? No, just a pan. Uh, yeah, a rice cooker might help. And also, a lot of times when I want to cook tough grains that have a real tough coat on them, like farro does, mm-hmm. uh, aside from any initial soaking that I do, I sometimes I'll reach for the pressure cooker because mm-hmm. the pressure cooker does a really good job of um, of pushing the, the liquid into those kind of uh, seed coats. But those the farro can take a long time. You've, have you cooked that with Cesare, yeah, Nastasia? I can't remember how what, it What's it? I don't know. It cooks it for longer than 50 minutes? I don't no? know. I don't want to say something. What do you mean? True. Well, I don't want to say something that's not true, but yeah, I've seen him cook it. Oh, say it and I'll try it and I'll call back and let you know if it's true or not. All right, yeah, right. We'll do some research too. We'll oh, jeez, Nastasha's we'll not her, willing I'll to call Cesare. Well, text Cesare now, see if we can get it while you're going. But um, if you don't, uh, a rice cooker, they're good because they're not going to scorch it while you're going, so you don't have to watch it as carefully, and they're going right. to get the water in eventually. Um, and, you know, on a brown, on a brown rice setting. Uh, or. Or, you know, I, I would definitely reach for the pressure cooker, and the pressure cooker is a lot easier because the pressure cooker, you just cook it for, like, you know, a ha- half hour in a pressure cooker, and you know it's going to be done. And that's how I cook similar grains. Like, uh, like I'll do um, – I cook rye berries that way in a pressure cooker. So we do – and I assume it's going to cook fairly similar to a rye berry. So to get a rye berry nice and fluffy, you know, you cook it in the pressure cooker from anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes in excess liquid. You also might want to use excess liquid. Are mm-hmm. you – you know uh, – was it absorbing all the liquid? Um, it started to, yeah. Yeah. Toward, yeah, toward the end. Yeah, so things like that that are tough, you might want to use excess liquid. I don't know that you're going to dilute the flavor that much, and then the, the liquid that you have left over, you could reduce down and use for something else. So that, you know, that, a, a lot of times those things, you know, once you start getting in a situation where it's liquid poor in the pan, then you start running into problems where you're actually going to start maybe <clears throat> losing water again out of the outside. The outside's going to harden up. I would keep it, I would keep them in liquid while they're while they're cooking because uh, that's definitely how i do it in a in a pressure cooker situation i don't know if that's going to help whether you have you tried that yet i don't own a pressure cooker no no i meant uh keeping uh keeping a- excess liquid well if if water starts to run out i'll I'll just add some some more water and still uh, it's not getting fluffy huh yeah it's not all right listen so cesare casella is the dean of italian studies at the uh at the school and the man cooks faro all day every day and so uh, what is, what's going to happen is I'm going to I'm going to ask uh, I promise Stasi make sure I don't forget to do this. I just texted him. Okay. We texted Cesare Casella and I'm going to ask uh, Louis DiPaolo from DiPaolo cuz I buy most of my farro from DiPaolo's here in Great New York place. City. Yeah, Great I love place. I love DiPaolo's. Uh and so I think uh, it says here he cooks it risotto style. Oh. Okay, so if he cooks it risotto style, then he probably does do an initial fry of the grains. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't know what that's going to do from a from a texture standpoint, and then just keeps adding liquid the entire time while he's stirring until it absorbs enough. Um, have you tried that one? Have you ju- tried it basically just like it's a risotto? But it's going to take I a lot. Longer. That seems like it would take a lot longer. Uh, oh, a whole lot longer. Yeah, I mean a whole whole lot longer. I mean, got kids at home. <laughs> yeah, I know what that's like. You know what though. So you have you have kids at home. Listen, consider not just for the faro. Consider buying a pressure cooker. Pressure cooker is like a genius piece of equipment. Um, I don't know if you have the room for it in your kitchen or if you know you're anti pressure cooker. But you no, know. not at all. I've 
very much pro pressure cookers. Just don't have the means to buy one. Oh yeah. You guys w- wouldn't happen to have an extra one just lying around <laughs> collecting dust, would you? <laughs> and we we kind of rip through them because they use them on the menu. But look, so you know if you've on our blog. Uh, we we don't technically recommend any. I use Kuhn Recon, and Kuhn Recons are really expensive. But mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of applications, the cheaper pressure cookers they they do a serviceable job, for, especially for things like you know like uh, grains like this that you want to cook, cook quickly. Um, the advantage of them also is in the summertime they're not going to heat up your kitchen very much um, because as soon as they come up to pressure you can turn the temperature down uh, I mean turn not the temperature sorry turn the uh, the uh, heat input down and so they're actually fairly efficient cooking vessels um, <clears throat> um, to you know to just to stop your you know cut your air conditioning bills down a little bit yeah. in, in in the summertime um, I wish I had the recipe in my head. Anyway, we have texted the appropriate people, and Nastasha, your job is to make sure that the answer is put up into the forum section of the blog. I will. We should. We, I'm going to start a separate thing in the forum section. It's just like radio, radio Questions. show answers. It's mm. a great idea. Yeah. All right. So I'll do that for you, and that'll be there within within the week. And I apologize that I didn't answer your question to I think you've done a great job at uh, at attempting to. All right. Thanks so much. And I thanks. think you did actually answer it. I'll I'll. Try to buy a pressure cooker. All right. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. No problem. All right. And, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. So as we leave, there is still room uh, in tomorrow, Wednesday, July, what is that, 28th, 28th. Uh, at the French Culinary Institute downtown. Come do high-tech cocktails uh, with uh, me uh, and with Nils Norin. We're going to do liquid nitrogen, rotary, rotary evaporation. We'll teach you how to clarify lime juice using agar at home. Uh, we're going to do... Three it was six cocktails really, but three different ones done in a home friendly way, and then done in a techno well, but still using technology, and then in a technology intensive way, and so you could taste the difference and see kind of what we do with all the fancy equipment and what you can do at home. That's tomorrow at the French Culinary at six p.m. I think it's six to eight, six to eight or something. And there's like gonna that. be burgers and fries, burgers, fries, and liquor. What could be better? You're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network this week, brought to you by. Fairway, like no other market. Vicious, vicious vodka. 